Well, good evening and welcome to the final 48, final 48 verses of the Bible. That's Revelation 21 and 22. And so we're going to look at that. We started it last week looking at chapter 21 verses 1 through 5 and we'll pick up with 6 through 14 tonight. So we're glad that you're here. However, you're joining us online. We're glad that you joined us also. It's always good to see a good crowd here. Looking forward to what God has to say to us tonight. So let's pray together and then we'll begin with chapter 21 of Revelation verses 6 through 14. God, we thank you tonight for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is uh, inerrant. It's infallible. God, it's every time we read it, it's you speaking to us. And I'm thankful for scripture tonight. Lord, I just pray that you would be our teacher tonight, that you would teach us, open up our minds. Thank you so much, God, for giving us these verses on heaven. And help us, Father, to comprehend all that we can with earthly minds. Lord, we thank you for Jesus making it all possible. And I pray tonight, everyone who joins us online or here in the, in the worship center, that, God, your presence would be here in a special way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, Revelation 21, 6 through 14. You know, you can learn a lot about a person by walking through their house. You can, can't you? You, you find out how they live. Uh, you find out uh, what's important to them. You can look around and find out what they value. Um, you, you, can, you can find out who's important to them. You'll see pictures on walls or on refrigerator or displayed somewhere. You find out who's important to them. And you know, in much the same way, you learn a lot about God by walking through his house. The final 48 verses of the Bible describe to us God's home and where we will join him. Some of you already have loved ones who are there, spouses and children and, and uh, sisters and brothers. And, and some of you may be joining this city before long. Who knows? None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And so in these final 48 verses, we learn a lot about God by, by taking a walk through his house. We find out what's important to him. We find out what he values. We find out some of the people who mean a lot to him. And we we'll see some of those as we go through these final 48 verses. So step with me as we, as we take a walk through God's house and, and see what it's like. First of all, let's recap where we were last week and where we left off. If you look at letter A on your outline, the the new heaven and the new earth began these final 48 verses in chapter 21, verse 1. The earth and heavens have passed away. Judgment has come upon those who did not receive Jesus as Savior, whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. They have now been cast into the lake of fire. So once that happened at the end of chapter 20, God graciously left us 48 powerful verses to tell us what heaven's like because he knew we would wonder and he, he did this according to Jesus in John 14 to comfort us. So we're comforted by what we read and study last week and, and, and tonight in the next couple of weeks. So as John 21 opens in looking at God's house, John saw the new heaven and the new earth and the very first thing that he noticed was its beauty. 
John saw it, the new city, the, the, the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down out of heaven. He said, I noticed how beautiful it was. It was as beautiful as a bride adorned for her husband on wedding day. And then he said, after I, I, I saw how beautiful it was, that I heard something behind me, and it was a loud voice. It was the voice of God saying, the dwelling of God is now with men, and he will be with them, and God will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. And there will be no more pain. And no more sorrow. And no more mourning or crying. For the former things have passed away. And then the last verse we looked at last week. God finally spoke. In all, the, all of Revelation, God finally said something. And God spoke and said, I am making everything new. So heaven is a place where everything's new. New bodies, new energy, new vitality, new creativity. Everything's new. He makes everything new. And evidently, this, was stunned, this stunned John so much. We don't know if he stopped writing or what, but then God told him, write this down. And so he, he wrote it down. He said, these words are trustworthy and true. So what we're looking at tonight, we know is accurate and true because God himself from his mouth, John heard him say, these words are right, they're true. So, let's continue to look at them. Let her be on your outline. Let's get to tonight's passage. First of all, God continues to speak in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now let's stop there for a moment. The very next thing God said in verse 6 is, it is done. What's done? Well, go back to Jesus on the cross. You remember one of the last things he said? To tell us die, it is finished. What's finished? Man's salvation has been accomplished. So Jesus, on the cross, salvation has been accomplished. And now God declares, it is done. Satan and sin and evil has all been done away with. Everything that is evil and anti-God is gone. And there's nothing left. But everything God is about in his holy city. It is done is in the perfect tense. That means it's completion, closure, finished. Same thing that Jesus said. So what is done is our salvation. Folks, it started in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, Adam and, and Eve fell. And really the Bible's pretty easy to explain. It, mankind fell in Genesis 3. And beginning in Genesis 3, you have a Bible-long quest to bring mankind back again. That's what it's about. And it's done. Humanity has been redeemed, our Creator, and we get to enjoy Him forever. It's done. Finished. And then he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. You, I'm sure you know the Alpha is the 
first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so he's simply saying, I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the originator and the terminator of all things. And now all things are under his command underneath him. And then he said something interesting in verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life free of charge. Now that's kind of an odd thing to say to John, isn't it? But think about this. All through Scripture, water is important to God's people. One of the reasons why is where they're located. They come out of Egypt. Egypt was dependent upon the Nile. That's why the plagues upon the Nile in the, in the, in the Exodus story. And then they get out of the Egypt and they go into the wilderness. And guess what? There's no water. And they cry out to the Lord, Lord, we're hungry and we're thirsty. And you remember God commanded Moses to go over and take a, his staff and strike the walk, rock and water would gush out, fresh water. Fresh water was valuable in, in those days in that part of the world. But you know what? It still is. Then Israel goes into the promised land. And guess what? There's not much water. In fact, whenever we go to Israel now, uh, you can see parched ground a lot because they don't get a lot of rainfall there the Negev southern part of Israel gets about two inches a year very first time we went to Israel back in the 80s it rained two inches in the Negev while we're there and the roads flooded and there's flooding everywhere they got all two inches in one day but water is is scarce and water is valuable not just any kind of water, fresh spring water. you got to look for those. Not much of it over there. And so the importance of water to God's people from the wilderness into Israel, that's why Jesus says, I'm the living water. And it meant so much to the Jews to think of someone who's the living water who will give to me to drink without cost anytime I want it. To a Jew... I was heaven. But you know, really, a lot of every places all over the world today, water is still life, isn't it? Fresh drinking water, you don't have it. Not much life can happen. It, water meets the deepest and the most basic need of humanity. In fact, all the way back to Isaiah 55, the, the plea was, Ho, oh, everybody that's thirsty, come. Come to me and I'll, I'll give you water without cost. And here he repeats that again from Isaiah 55. It is really a beautiful gospel invitation to come. And so now he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and whoever's thirsty at all, we have springs running continuously here. Fresh water all the time, free of charge. You'll love it. So to a Jew, to go to a city like that, would be heaven. But contrast also something else in this passage. You remember all the way back, Revelation 17 and 18, three chapters, four chapters ago, whenever we're introduced to the harlot, you have the false prophet, you have the beast, and you have the harlot who is from the devil. Remember, she's holding something, holding a cup. But inside, rather than fresh flowing water is 
abominations and sins and evil and wickedness. And so, starting in chapter 21, you have a contrast between what the harlot was like and what the bride gives you. The, the cup of evil and destruction and death and pure, fresh, crystal clean water. And a city, Babylon, that was full of iniquity and wickedness. And a city, the new Jerusalem, that's nothing but pure and righteous and holy. And so all the way through, you see the contrast between what the devil offered and what God gives his people. So, anybody thirsty, you come, drink of the water of life freely. Look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. So what he's saying is the one who conquers, believers, believers, you made it through the tribulation. Believers, you've made it through the enemy. You've made it through sin. You've made it to heaven. You're there. You've overcome. You're a conqueror. And now you will inherit everything. What is an inheritance? Well, it's, it's basically something you receive because somebody else worked, right? You get it because somebody else worked for it. They left it to you. So it's no accident that God looks at heaven and John sees it and he says, before you is your inheritance. You didn't work for it. Jesus did, but you get it. You're an overcomer. You conquered. You now inherit all of this. And then a powerful statement. I will be his God. And he will be my son. Or daughter means offspring. That statement goes all the way back to David. David was about to die and God was telling him, 2 Samuel 7, 14, that he was turning all things over to Solomon. And in that covenant he made with David, he said, David, because you've been a man after my own heart, I'm going to leave somebody on the throne of Israel all the time who's a descendant of yours. And Solomon, your son's going to follow, and he, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Almost the exact wording here. Except instead of Solomon now, it's you, and it's me. It's everyone who trusted Christ. He will be our God. We will be his child. We'll enjoy that intimate relationship forever. Two Greek words are used synonymously, weos and technon, son and child, mature sons versus simple children, but that it's, they're used synonymously. In other words, you are God's child forever. That intimate relationship will never be broken. So chapter seven, verse 7, chapter 21, powerful verse. But look at verse 8. It changes. Now God says something interesting. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word but gives you a contrast all of a sudden. 
contrasting to the believers and what we get to enjoy are those who do not inherit heaven and they're the ones that have the lake of fire. Notice who he lists. Cowardly literally means timid ones. Those who did not stand for their faith in the tribulation. Those who took the mark of the beast instead of standing for Christ. The timid ones, the cowards, he says. And then he says the faithless, that means the unbelieving. Ah, pistis, those that do not believe, they don't have heaven. The detestable, it means abominable. It's the passive participle, which means they have become detestable by what they did. So their actions made them detestable. And the sexually immoral, the Greek word that's used there is pornea. We get the word pornography from it. It means, it's the same word used of the harlot in Revelation. She's called the great pornea. It means anything that's sexually immoral or, 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 or uh, against God's plan sexually. But look at the next word, sorcerers. The word is pharmakos. We get the word pharmacy from it. It means drugs and drug use. And liars. All who follow their father, the father of lies, they're there with him. Now, all of these that are listed here are typically characteristics of unbelievers. Now, I've always heard, and you probably have too, that people will pull out this one verse and they say that if you ever do this, you'll never get to go to heaven. And so they think because God's describing it in the context of heaven that he pulled out each one of these and these are the ones that if you ever commit these one time you don't get to go to heaven I've always heard that when well, you realize you can't go to heaven if you're a coward or if you're faithless or if you're detestable or if you've ever murdered anybody that's not what he's saying he's not saying if you've committed one of these one time in your life you never get to go because I, w I heard even as a child growing up in church well the Bible says if you ever do that you can't go to heaven no it doesn't it's contrasting those whose faith and sins are covered, but because if you think about it, some of these very same sins were named among believers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. And in Galatia, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, among believers. So he's not saying if you commit one of these one time, you never get to go, but you can commit other sins and be forgiven. I've heard, that, I've heard that interpretation, and that's not what the verse is saying. So, yes, these sins even mark believers at times. But what he's saying is these are typically, typically characteristics of unbelievers. He says their part is the lake of fire. Now, think about this. Heaven's passed away, right? Chapter 20. Earth's passed away. Chapter 20. Nothing's left. Except heaven, right? Well, heaven and hell. The lake of fire is still here. It's still there. It hasn't passed away. It doesn't appear to be in the center of the earth. We think of hell as down there. You ever wonder why I'm doing it? Well, hell's down there. It's not in the center of the earth. It's at a completely different location, not connected spatially to the new heavens, new earth at all. We don't know where hell is. 
So the lake of fire will exist somewhere separate from the new heaven, separate from the new earth, separate from the new Jerusalem. We don't know where hell's going to be. It may be up, it may be over, it may be down. We don't know. But it still exists. So those that do not receive Christ, they are banished to the lake of fire, sulfur, away from the new city, away from new, the new heaven, the new earth. They are somewhere separate, but continuing to exist. Now let's go to letter C on your outline. Starting in verse 9, God begins to give John more information about the new Jerusalem. So we have more information, verses 9 through 14, letter C on your outline. Now before we start reading the verses, let me explain something historically that I think will make much more sense as we begin to talk more about heaven. Prior to the Middle Ages, people viewed heaven as something tangible. It was a city. It was paradise. It was a garden. Uh, it was real. You could, you, people were real and, and things were real. This is prior to the Middle Ages. And that's how heaven was viewed. But in the 12th and the 13th centuries, theologians began to write differently about heaven. Peter Lombard, Peter Abelard, some of the leading theologians of the, of the Middle Ages began to write that heaven isn't physical, it's spiritual. So, now, now the Bible doesn't describe it that way, but that's how theologians began to describe heaven. Heaven is something that's not literal in nature, it's symbolic, and so all the descriptions of heaven are only symbolic, and there's really nothing material in heaven, it's all spiritual. And so that led to a movement known as scholasticism. You may have heard that term before. And the leader of scholasticism was a man by the name of Thomas Aquinas. He was a leading theologian of scholasticism. And so he began, Thomas Aquinas began dominating theology. And his view of heaven was totally unbiblical. But what happened was the doctrine of heaven began to be taken hostage. And it's still hostage today. Because people's view of heaven is still what Thomas Aquinas taught. Not what the Bible taught, what Thomas Aquinas thought. By the way, Thomas Aquinas was the leading theologian of the Roman Catholic Church. Their teachings today are primarily from Thomas Aquinas. That's why so many schools, so many uh, uh, churches are named after Thomas Aquinas. But his view of heaven was totally different. His view of heaven and other scholastic writers was heaven was cold and impersonal. And, and it embraced a concept of heaven that was much more intangible and immaterial. It was more spiritual. It really wasn't anything solid. It was just more you floated on a cloud because there was no place to put your, put your feet. And, and all of these writers, Thomas Aquinas, they claimed heaven could not be made of material elements like water and air and all of that because they're made of more nobler elements like light. So what are we here today when you die? Go to the light. It's Thomas Aquinas. That's not Scripture. Not one time did John ever say, I looked into heaven and I saw this bright light. But all the, all the reports of people who die and go to heaven now, I saw this bright light. 
No, that's Catholic teaching. That's not scriptural. He never really describes a light. He describes a city, which is material and physical. And so these scholastic writers in the Middle Ages almost entirely ignored the new earth as an eternal dwelling place of resurrected human beings and living with resurrected Jesus in a physical world of natural wonders and physical structures and a culture because the average person today still thinks of heaven as light in the cloud. So according to Aquinas, heaven does not contain plants or animals, only light. And he said the only activity up there is contemplation. All you do is sit around and think. Boy, that sounds fun, doesn't it? Heaven's light and all there is to do is contemplation. And since God is worship, that's the only activity there. You worship and you think. You worship and you think. But that's Thomas Aquinas. That's not Scripture. You look at Scripture and you see a city that's noisy. And you see activity. And people are doing things. So this teaching of Thomas Aquinas has never lost its grip on the church. As a result, Christians don't think of heaven as physical activity or creativity or the elements that make up a city. They're mostly ignored today. And so in order to believe this, you really have to ignore Scripture and believe Thomas Aquinas. That's just a little history as we begin reading verse 9 now. Because what you're going to hear is not really much about contemplation and light. What you're going to hear about is a city with walls and activities and streets and gold and gems and beauty. Things that are material, not immaterial. So let's look. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me. He said, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife, the lamb. So John is, has one of the angels to come to be his guide through heaven. I'll show you the bride. Now, notice again, remember the contrast, the harlot, 17 and 18, and the bride. Notice the contrast, Babylon, the city of Babylon, and now the city of the New Jerusalem. You can't dwell in both cities. And I'll show you the wife of the Lamb. This is the first of seven times in these last 48 verses the word Lamb is mentioned. That's Jesus. So heaven is primarily about Jesus, the Lamb. The Lamb who overcame. So you could be there. So I could be there. One theologian said, the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And he is. He's all the glory of heaven. So verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Let's stop there for a moment. This angel carried John away to one of the new mountains God had created on the new earth to give him a high vantage point where he could see the new city. Now remember last week, and we're going to talk more about it next Wednesday night, 
But remember last Wednesday night, I introduced to you that the new city was measured by John, and we're going to see his measurements next week, and it was 12,000 stadia, which that means about 1,400 miles in every direction. The city, 1,400 miles this way, and 1,400 miles this way, and 1,400 miles high. So how high did the mountain have to be that he could go look on top of it and see a view of the city? Wow, pretty high mountain, isn't it? So he gets this high vantage point of, of this city. And he called it Jerusalem. What does Jerusalem mean? Jeru, city, shalom, peace. City of peace. So he's looking down upon the new peaceful city because sin is gone and notice he saw a city he didn't see a church there's some theologians heaven's gonna be a big church he didn't say it was a church he knew what churches were he called it a city and he didn't just call it a group of people gathered now whenever I was a boy growing up and I thought of heaven I didn't know who Thomas Aquinas was, but I pictured it to be light, because that's what I always heard. And I pictured a cloud. Everybody sat on a cloud. And I pictured people just all gathered together, standing around. People, he didn't see people gathered. He saw a city, a city where they live. I just had pictured thousands of people, as far as you could see, all standing around. What are we doing? I don't know. <laughs> but we're all just standing around. And he didn't see that. He saw a city. Fifteen times in chapters 21 and 22, heaven is called a city. Not merely a figure of speech. It's a city. A city has architecture. A city has walls. A city has streets. A city has residence. A city has features that are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Everything a city has, the new Jerusalem seems to have. Think about cities. What do cities have? Well, you have residences, and you have bustling activity, and you have cultural events, and you have gatherings, and you have music, and you have the arts, and you have education, and you have entertainment, and you have athletics. You have, you have a lot going on in cities. Are all of those going to be a part of the new Jerusalem? Some theologians say yes. Randy Alcorn's one of them. Everything you see in a city except porn shops and crime and drugs and bars and clubs and those kind of things. But why is it called a city repeatedly 15 times if it's not a city? If Aquinas was right and it's just light, why didn't John say light? He says it's a city. This new massive city John saw sparkling like a diamond and radiating with wondrous light appears in the sky and slowly descends to the new earth like a massive spaceship. And John's watching it, recording it. Coming down out of heaven from God's what he said. It's a gift from God. It's not the achievement of man. It's a gift of God. 
And that's what he sees. So, here's a question. Is a city, is it literal? Or is it symbolic? Or is it both? Wedding band is both symbolic and real. You can have symbolism in, in literal at the same time. Some commentators say the descriptions of, of the city are symbolic. And they say, well, you don't really have streets of gold. That's just, that's just a, a euphemism. Well, we have s- streets of asphalt here. It's not symbolic. Well, critics say, no, you, uh, a city that size would dishonor God. How? I read one commentator that said that, but he never said why that would dishonor God. Another said, well, a city that size would weigh so much, it would throw off the cosmos. God created it. Another commentator said, well, a city that high, 1,400 1400 miles high, it would exceed the oxygen level. God create, couldn't he create a place where oxygen levels up to 1,400? Of course he can. So why is it only seen as symbolic by some people? Folks, heaven appears to be a physical realm designed for redeemed human beings. Why wouldn't a resurrected world inhabited by resurrected people have actual streets and gates and walls? Why wouldn't it? We're going to be real. Our bodies are going to have a resurrected body. Jesus and his resurrected body after the resurrection, he could be touched. He was a human being looking like person. And so where are human being like persons that are real going to live? In light? No, in a city. Look at verse 11. John said having the city had the glory of God, its radiance was like a most rare jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. John was really impressed with this city, by the way. The first and most outstanding feature that he notes here is its glow. The city is glowing with the splendor of God himself. And John compared it to a beautiful gem, Jasper. Wait a minute. Jasper is beautiful, but it's not always clear. In fact, God is described as Jasper early in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, but it's not really clear. Most theologians feel like this was what he was describing was a mostly crystal gem with many facets of brilliance, much like we would know as a diamond. Diamonds are the hardest substance known to science. The only thing that scratches a diamond is a diamond. Diamonds are made from carbon. The far reaches of the hot earth and the days before the dinosaurs and then, and then they're, now they're brought forth by volcanoes and heat and pressure transform them into the most beautiful stones on earth. No other gem reflects and refracts and disperses light as brilliantly as a diamond does. But an entire city made of diamond? Is that even possible? Did you see a while back, uh, 2004, scientists discovered a planet composed mostly of carbon and was one-third pure diamond? 
twice the size of the earth. A diamond of 10 billion trillion trillion carats. It orbits a nearby star in the Milky Way. Its official name is 55 Cancri E. The E stands for exoplanet. I was reading about it earlier today. Now astronomers say it may not be as carbon-based as they once thought, but now they believe there are other planets out there. They call them the diamond planets because they're made out of diamonds. If God made planets, couldn't he create a city of diamonds? The designer and the architect of the holy city himself? Sure he could. And that's what John saw. And then verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Oh, now we're beginning to see the pictures around the house of people who are important, right? Israel, the 12 tribes, their pictures are there, their names are inscribed. On the 12 gates of the city. These gates caught the attention of John. He he sees these gates, 12 of them. And they're beautiful. The word gate there, by the way, is pylon. Those of you who are football fans, you know what a pylon is, don't you? Those little orange things that go up in the end zone. As you enter the end zone, that's what the the word pylon comes from. Greek means you you enter a place. I know, the cowboys don't enter it very often. But... The, it means you enter someplace in the word gate there. It's pylon. And so he sees this city, and the city looks square. You heard the old songs, the city built for a square? That's what John saw. It looked like a square city. It had high walls. Why does it have walls and gates? Nobody's going to attack. Why would heaven have walls and gates? No armies are coming in. Symbolic. God has always taken care of his people and defended them, and he will throughout the ages. Twelve towers, three stood on each side with angelic guards, great security. And notice that Israel will have a distinct identity and role throughout all of eternity. Israel will be known as Israel. Verse 13. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. You know the first thing that struck me when I read that? We'll have directions in heaven. North, south, and east and west. John described them. Three on the east, three on the west, three on the north, three on the south. So geographic dimensions exist in eternity, just as they do now. So space and time will exist into eternity. And so the layout is really interesting here as John describes it. As you're reading what he describes, it sounds like the layout of the Israelites in the wilderness. You remember that? How God says, now whenever you go, whenever you camp, make sure three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here. And the tabernacle in the middle, he's describing the new Jerusalem. Way back at the wilderness. Just describing the camp of the Israelites. So the layout is the same. Three tribes in each direction. Except in the wilderness, the tribe of Jacob was omitted. And the tribe of Levi was omitted. 
But now in Jerusalem, they're there. All 12 tribes together. You know that Israel never was really have their own land very much. They were in bondage in Egypt, and then they wandered the wilderness. They didn't have their land. And then they went into the promised land, had their land for a while, but it was taken away from them. And they were, they were scattered to, to Syria and Babylon, and then some of them came back. And it's called the Diaspora. They were scattered all over the world. 1948, they came back, but not all of them. Israel never really has had permanence very long. And here they finally do. All 12 tribes are represented all 12 tribes are accounted for. They're all there. God didn't lose a one. Verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There's the word Lamb second time. But now hold on. I've got a question. So you have 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel, Old Testament. And now you have the 12 names of the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So the 12 disciples are all going to have their, their names forever. So God had a role for each to identify. If you think about it, Israel in the Old Testament, God's channel of Old Testament redemption, and the disciples brought the message throughout after Jesus died and resurrected, ascended back to heaven, they took the gospel message in the New Testament as a channel of redemption. And so you have both channels of redemption in heaven, 12 tribes of Israel and the 12, 12 disciples. Wait a minute, that's 24. What do we hear the elders in the heaven worshiping? 24 elders. Could it be the same? I have a question. Twelve disciples, but one was Judas. Does Judas get a place in heaven with his name on it? Some Bible scholars say yes. Because he played a role in salvation happening. Other commentators say, no, Judas, I'm no part of heaven. And so it's Matthias rather than Judas, because if you remember the book of Acts, they replaced the 12th disciple with Matthias. And still other commentators say, no, it's Paul. It'll have the apostle Paul's name on it, because he was really the 12th disciple. He said he was born out of due time, so he's going to be the 12th disciple. We don't know. But there are 12 names, not just 11. And the city had 12 foundations. So evidently it was either one huge foundation that layered with 12 layers or each section had their own foundation. But a foundation to a Jew is important because their whole lives they were nomads. They didn't have anything permanent to them. You drove a stake in the ground and you slept and you woke up the next day and you pulled the stake up and you went to the next place and drove it again to the next night and pulled it up and traveled. They were nomads most of their lives. So to have a foundation meant permanence to a Jew. Ah, yes, 
a place of perfection with water and with permanence. That'd be heaven to a Jew. And that's what John began to see. So you can learn a lot about a person by walking through their house, what they value, what they believe, what's important to them, how they live, whose pictures, whose names are around. And in this city, folks, the architect's fingerprints are all over heaven. They are seen everywhere throughout the heavenly city. Every feature of the city speaks of his attributes. And God will delight in his new city. And he will delight to share it with you. Well, we'll pick back up next Wednesday night with verse 15. It gets, it gets better. If you have questions or comments, see me afterwards. Email me. I'll be glad to, to address those or, or answer those or uh, hear your comments. Be glad to discuss it with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful city. Thank you, God, for our loved ones who are already getting to experience it. And God, thank you that as best he could, John wrote descriptions of it. And I just pray as we read these descriptions, God, would you just, would you just energize our minds in such a way to bring creativity of everything that it's going to be, and most of all, most of all, to get to be with you. Thank you for loving us so much and providing a place like this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week. We'll see you Sunday.